0: what we're going to look at in scripture in Ephesians 3 is that one aspect of what we're going to look at is the fact that when we're united together when we're united in Christ that we are actually we are proclaiming to the angels what this looks like, what God's done, what, what God's plan has revealed. And so we're proclaiming to the angels. They don't, even, they don't even understand everything that's going on. So we're not only proclaiming to the angels in heaven, but we're proclaiming to the principalities of darkness that the king has won. That what they thought was going to be vict- victory when he was hanging on the cross that the king's plan was better than their plan, and it was a secret they didn't even realize. And so we're going to sing this chorus one more time, and then we'll look at Scripture. For those of you that weren't here on my first good morning, welcome late. You know who you are. Oh, (laughs) that was rhetorical and you just called yourself out. Hey, if you want to go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, we've been in the book of Ephesians for a good while now and, um, in a series called "Be Rich," and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick up in chapter three, and we'll read that in just a few minutes. But before we even read that, I want to take a poll. Um, this is a poll of honesty and a poll of, of who actually keeps secrets. So, by show of hands, who would say I am very good at keeping secrets? <laughs> Golly. <laughs> And we wonder why the church doesn't confide in each other. Uh, okay, who would say, man, that's a struggle. I just, and when I hear some good news or when I hear news at all, I just want to blurt it out. Okay, I appreciate your honesty. That's all, it's all good. Well, here's the good news. By the time we get to the middle to end of this, you're actually going to realize that there is a secret that is now out. And the, the title of the sermon is, the secret is out. So there's a secret that's now out that you can actually tell people and not have to feel guilty about. And so we're going to look at that. But um, let, me, let me ask you something else. So who, who's been to Disney? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, have any parents in here done the whole, we're going to keep it a secret, you know, we're going somewhere else or, you know, we're going to blindfold our kids, which is really mean. Um, And drive them, and then then they're not going to realize what we're doing, where we're going, until we hit Disney World, and they're like, what? Okay, we got one. Okay. All right. Huh, okay. (laughs) Well, in many ways, what we're going to see in this text is that up until the New Testament, really up until the church, up until a lot of what's revealed to the apostles and prophets in the New Testament, there was a a secret. And it wasn't like this new plan that had to be conjured up. God knew all along, but it was a secret that had yet to be revealed. And so we'll define that a little bit as we go along. But just a quick overview of Ephesians you know, like I said, we've been in Ephesians for a good while. Kind of book, the book of Ephesians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to uh, several churches in that area and in Ephesus. And so the book is really, it's a letter, and it's divided really into two, to two parts. It's the first part of the book. The, what we see is the first three chapters, which obviously they didn't have chapters when it was a letter. But the first three chapters is a lot of teaching on doctrine, on Here's what you need to believe. Here here is the truth about who Jesus is. Here's the truth about who you are in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6, what we're going to see is, because you now know this truth, because you now have this foundation, this is how you walk it out. This is how you live what we just learned. This is how you practice right doctrine. This is Christian ethics. This is how you live. And so the main idea, and and I've told a few people this, and and it's a mouthful. So the main idea of, of the message today out of the first 13 verses of Ephesians 3 is this. The plan of God unites people in the Son of God to proclaim the mystery of God and display the wisdom of God for the glory of God. All right, take it off the screen and you guys repeat it back to me. (laughs) Okay, we're not there yet. We're not. (laughs) Thanks, Scott. You actually did it. Um, We're going to say it one more time. The plan of God unites people in the Son of God to proclaim the mystery of God and display the wisdom of God for the glory of God. Okay, and we're going to walk through that. If you Anybody using the church app? Anybody using it right now? Anybody trying to find notes, outlines? They're not on there. They're not on there. (laughs) So if you want to write something down, if it makes any of you feel better that I want to leave here with a note, write down the main idea. Okay, That's, that's what you're going to get from me. The main idea. And then I might put an outline on later. Steve Wright emailed me because he's such a great small group leader. Uh, middle of the week, and was like, hey, Brother Preston, he didn't say Brother Preston, but hey, Preston, could you email me your outline, and, and, you know, I just want to prepare because Jimmy does this, I'm like, of course Jimmy does this, (laughs) sets the bar so high, and so I emailed him back, unfortunately, I don't have a publishable outline, but here's the main idea in the passage, I'll pray for you, bro, I hope it, (laughs) I'm sure, man, you're so good, though, you're ready, you're good. All right, let's jump in. First six verses of Ephesians. I'm going to read that just so we can gain a little bit of context. First six verses of chapter three starts out, it says, this is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. For this reason, I, Paul. And so he's relating back to to everything Jimmy's preached on the past several weeks. and, And we'll review that in a minute. But for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you, read you may understand, when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which is in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And here's one of our key verses in the passage that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. We're going to stop there. We'll pick up with the remainder of this passage in just a bit. But we're going to start here. So let me summarize because we're really going to pick up in verse 6. But I want to make sure we understand how, how we got there, what Paul's telling us. And so one thing that Paul is, is kind of communicating is that because of everything I've just told you, because, because you guys are united, and we've heard about this uh, quite a bit, once again, because Jimmy's preached on it, you're citizens of God's kingdom, you're members of God's family, you're a dwelling place of God. That's what he just told them to finish up the, uh, the second verse. Because of this, this is why I'm writing. But Paul's so, like, to me, Paul's so relatable, right? Because Paul gets one verse into chapter three, and then he has like this squirrel moment. He's getting ready to pray for him. He's getting ready to say, hey, because of all this, let me just pray over you guys. Oh, oh, actually, let me explain some things. And then he goes on this tangent for 13 verses or 12 verses and, and tries to explain this mystery a little bit further. So, And he refers to himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. No, he didn't say, I'm the prisoner of Rome. He didn't say, because the Jews got so jealous of me preaching to the Gentiles, I am now the prisoner of Of the Gentiles, he said, "I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus." Paul understood that this was the plan of God. He understood that this wasn't because the Romans wanted him in jail. This wasn't because the Jews were so were so vindictive that they put him in. This was the plan of God. He is a prisoner of Christ Christ Jesus, and many of us don't. I mean, I I don't think I use the word dispensation in my everyday life. But he says, "If, "If indeed." You have heard of the dispensation. Essentially what he's saying is this, is, this is something that God has given me. This is a stewardship that God has given me to proclaim this mystery to you guys. And so he's given me, the, the, he's called me out, and he's going to explain that a little bit more. He, you know, I had this Damascus Road experience. If you look in, in Acts chapter 9, the beginning of Acts chapter 9, is when Jesus just lights Paul up and, and shows him, That, Paul, you are persecuting me. Why are you doing this? And so that's what he's referring to. Um, He says how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. And so from that time on, he's he's put Paul for the rest of his life on this mission to reveal this mystery to the world, to the Jews and the Gentiles. And so we've used that word, like mystery, to reveal this mystery. Once again, I think when you and I read this text, it's real easy to read through some of this stuff and try to get to something that really pops and really makes sense for us. And so we just read past. Well, what is the mystery? And he touches on that. He touches on it in in chapter 1. He comes back to it in chapter 2. And so now he's really going to nail it down. Guys, here's what I'm talking about when I say the mystery. And in verse 6, once again, he says, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ Jesus, or in Christ through the gospel. Through the gospel. Okay, so what does mystery mean? If we look at the original text, and there's a commentator by the name of Kent Hughes, it'll be on. I think I put this one up on the screen. It says, in the New Testament, the Greek word mysterium means something which is beyond natural knowledge, but has been opened up to us by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. Paul's words in Colossians 1.26 give us the idea, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. It is something previously undreamed of, which is now disclosed to believers. An open secret. Okay, so this isn't the... When, when, when we hear mystery, I, I think most of us would naturally gravitate toward uh, movie genre, Right? Or a book, a good book. Have you ever, have you read any mystery books lately? This isn't something that we're still trying to figure out. This is something that is already an open secret to anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Another commentary says that a mystery is, quote, a sacred secret. That is unknown to unbelievers, but understood and treasured by the people of God. Okay, so... Title of the sermon, the secret is out. When we see mystery in Ephesians 3, think open secret or sacred This is a secret that has now been revealed. So once again, I, I mentioned that Jimmy's already talked about the fact that, that people are united in Christ. And so Paul's told him over and over, listen, you're united together. You're, and he gives them all these analogies that that you're united, you're citizens of a kingdom, you're, you're members of this family, you're family members together, you're, you're a dwelling place of God. And so Christ is the cornerstone and, and, and you're the building blocks of this temple. But we need to gain some context for what, what he's referring to specific to the Jews and the Gentiles. And some of you probably have that context, some of you maybe it just seems a little distant. So, Jimmy used this um, used this in April, but I think it, it summarizes fairly well the disdain that was held between the Jews and the Gentiles. Like, think about, um, man, I didn't I'm trying to stay away from sports analogies, but it's so hard. Uh, but you know, Michigan State. I went to Michigan State. Everybody knows that if you know me, and I have quite a disdain for the University of Michigan. You know, like, if you're, like, it's my boy, Zolo. Um, I mean, to the point that, like, seriously, it's confession time. Like, I see somebody walking in a maize and blue, University of Michigan apparel, and I immediately am just, like, Pfft. like, I mean, like, I don't want to be your friend, and I bet that you're not succeeding in life. Um, <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. They think they're an Ivy League school anyways. Um, anyways, anyways, Jews and Gentiles. So you get that. Like, I've got some disdain for the University of Michigan. It does not compare to, what, to, to the disdain for each other, specifically the Jews toward the Gentiles in this early church era. That, like, we can't, we can't pit a group of people against another group and even fathom what that feels like. And I, and I would think the, the closest that we could get to that may be something similar to the Nazis and the Jews and the Holocaust. Like that type of hatred, that type of, of just pure disdain for each other. And Kent Hughes once again says, a study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalisms, our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. The Jews believed the Gentiles were the, were the created to fuel the fires of hell. That's literally what the Jews, that, that's how they felt about them. They felt like they were g- going to fuel the fires of hell. A common motto was the best of the serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles kill. It was not lawful to aid a gentile woman giving birth for that would bring another heathen into the world. So so get that for a minute. Like these are the people that Paul is now trying to help understand that in Christ like when they when they whether Jew or whether gentile declare their allegiance and their life belongs to Jesus Christ and that they couldn't get back to God any other way than, than giving their lives and, and understanding and accepting the sacrifice that Christ made. Like he's telling these people, you are the same. You are the same people. You are, you are fellow heirs. The first thing he talks about in verse six is that you are fellow heirs. And so heirs is a legal term. Right, And so, if you're an heir of an estate, then whatever that individual that passed away is leaving, then you are now the recipient of that. You are an heir. Romans 8, 16 and 17 talks about our heirship in Christ. It says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. And then Paul writes in Galatians, just to to kind of solidify this, that there's neither Jew nor Greek. You know what? That's over. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so what God promised to Abraham, that you're going to have generations that follow. God promises this to Abraham and for for all this time, the Jews thought, yep, that's us. And we got these little gnats called Gentiles that are second class citizens. They They don't get in this promise. And all of that has been ripped away now. And Paul says, that's not true. You are co-heirs. You're on the same playing field. You are now, you, you Gentile, have the exact same privilege, have the exact same heirship as you, Jew. John MacArthur says, the idea of including Gentiles in one body with Jews was the spiritual equivalent of saying that lepers were no longer to be isolated. They were now perfectly free to intermingle and associate with everyone else as normal members of society. In the minds of most Jews, their spiritual separation from Gentiles was so absolute and so right that the thought of total equality before God was inconceivable and it was little short of blasphemy. But now they're fellow heirs. Not only are they fellow heirs, they're members of the same body. And that's what we see in verse 6. They're members in the same body. So we've got this fellow heirs. Hey, legally, y'all have the same rights in Christ to God the Father as the Jews have. And once again, you're in the same family. You're members of the same body. One commentary says, This union of Jews and Gentiles in one body, which was so astonishing to all who saw it, is a logical consequence of the central doctrine of the gospel that God accepts all who trust him. God accepts all who follow Jesus. There is no distinction. There is no second class. There is no distant relatives. I work in, in insurance and we deal with we have to deal from an insurance standpoint with estate issues all the time. You know, mama passed away and now she didn't, she either did or didn't have a will. And you've got two kids and you got two stepkids and you got cousin Eddie that wants a piece of the pie. But who gets it? Only the heirs. And so if she's had a will, it's only the people that she said, This is who gets what I had. In the same way, God says, The only people that get my promises are the people that have hidden their lives and given their lives to Jesus Christ. Those are the people that I will call my heirs. Those are the people that I will adopt into my family. And then thirdly, they're partakers of the promise. And so when we talk about partakers of the promise, what Paul specifically referring to here. Uh, or or predominantly referring to is the promise of the Spirit. And so Jesus, before his ascension back to heaven, he died on the cross, he was buried for three days, he he appeared to many people, and then he ascended to heaven. Before, Before his ascension, he said this in Luke 24. He said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And so what Paul is telling these folks is, Most of all, you now have access to partake in this promised Spirit. If you are in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you now have the promised Holy Spirit. And so the Old Testament promises in relation to salvation. Once again, the Jews did not think that this would ever come to them having to share in these promises. They didn't think that they were going to... I mean, they they felt like this was solely exclusive to them. And so what we can see, if you surveyed the Old Testament, we can see, like you can see that that there's promises to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles even could look back at the Old Testament, Testament and say... Well, it seems like God's made some promises here that we can obtain, you know, that we can grab a hold of. But what they did, what, what the part they didn't understand was the coming of Christ. And the fact that this wasn't going to be promises set aside for the Gentiles, which are kind of secondary, not quite as good, kind of B team to the promises that the Jews held. This coming of Christ laid a level playing field. And the promises of the Jews in Christ are now the promises of the Gentiles. And there's, there's, there's now hope for both of these groups. This was not something... Um, this was not something that was easy for the... Even the Christian Jews. I'm not talking about... I mean, the, the Jews that, that heard these disciples proclaimed the good news and even responded and said, you know what? We shouldn't have put Jesus on the cross. We give our lives to you and we're going to proclaim you. Like this was still not easy news for them to hear because even the Christian Jews had this mindset that, well, okay, Gentile, if you really want to, if you really want to be a part of us, then you got to conform. You know, you... You need to, maybe they were hanging on to circumcision. You know, in the Old Testament, that's what, that's what identified. They, they referred to the Jews as the circumcised, to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. And so they, they would say, well, okay, because Jesus came, because he died, you can be in the club, but you need to go ahead and get circumcised. You need to become a Jew to be a Christian Jew. So it was tough for them to relate. But in the same way, I think we hear this and it, it can feel kind of distant for us, right? Like, what does that mean to us? Like, how many of you are, are interacting or have interacted with anybody that's Jewish? It's more than I, I mean, that's more than I thought. But, raise your hands again. Maybe a, a fourth, a fifth of the room. So, so many of us would say, what's the big deal, right? Like I've never had to kind of feel that tension or cross that bridge. I think one of the applications out of this for us as a church, for the church, is this really is, this is about racial diversity. This is about us looking at people that aren't like us, That don't have the background as us. That don't have the same culture as us. But the common denominator is they're professing faith in Jesus Christ. And when that's the case, just like the Jews and Gentiles, we are on the same playing field. We are level. We have the same promises of God. And we are in the same family. We are co-heirs together. It's been referred to post Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, that ever since the the coming of the Holy Spirit, since the, the inception of the church, that really the church is the third race. You've been, you've been brought in as Christians, if you are putting your faith in Jesus and you're part of God's family, you, you have a third race. And and it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that anything from the past, like how you are biologically formed, your cultural backgrounds, that doesn't mean that goes away, right? There's no uh, pastor that I heard, and I'm going to quote him here in a minute. J.D. Greer said, "There's no bleach line in heaven. You know, we're not going to get to heaven and everybody just turn the same color. We're going to have people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language." Surrounding the throne in different languages, praising Jesus. But what it means to be the third race is that this supersedes everything that had come beforehand. And so, if I'm in Christ and I'm, my African American brother is in Christ, yes, he's got a different cultural background. I've got a different cultural background, but we're the same in Christ. We are the church. J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, pastor, in an excerpt from one of his books, says, and think about this, uh, listen for a minute, I, I don't like people reading to me, and I'm reading to you quite a bit, but I also don't like recreating the wheel because there's some really good material on this. So, pay attention for a minute. He says, when you bring up the topic of racial diversity in most churches, many people think to themselves, well, I'm not a racist. So I'm good. But God's goal is not simply to have us stop looking down on other races. God wants unity. Not just a ceasing of hostilities. He wants the very makeup of His church to preach the gospel. That despite our racial variance, we are united under one ancestor, Adam. That we had one problem, sin. That we have one hope, salvation in Christ. He wants us to demonstrate to the world that this unity in Christ is weightier than anything that might divide us. When the Holy Spirit confronted Peter's racism, he didn't just command him to quit looking down on the other races. He commanded Peter to embrace Cornelius, to go in and eat with him. Peter did not go from racist to non-racist. He went from racist to gracist. Thus, if your metric for success is only, quote, have ceased to be racist, you haven't fully realized the gospel's goal. Christ is not after racial neutrality. He wants multicultural unity. Think about this, though. That's something that naturally we don't pursue. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of folks, even recently within the past five and ten years, that have written on tribalism. Like even within the church, that we tend to kind of tribe up in who looks like us, who thinks like us, who acts like us. And so, the only way that we pursue this racial unity is to kind of cut against the grain and to be intentional about forming relationships with people that don't look like us, don't act like us, and maybe don't even think like us. Because let's be honest, if we go to a lot of other churches this morning, whether it be some African American churches, whether it be some Hispanic churches, and we went to them, who's going to feel uncomfortable? Probably us. They don't sing like us. They don't worship like us. Some of those churches don't care as much about lunch as us. They'll go to 2 (laughs) o'clock and keep trucking. (laughs) But if they are preaching the same gospel, if they're believing the same truth that Jesus is their hope and their salvation... They are in the third race. They are like us. But I want to challenge us. I want to challenge true life. And I think we've grown in this to some degree. And this service is a horrible representation of that. (laughs) Um, But look around. Listen, we don't have to run from it. Look around. What do you see? See a bunch of white folks, don't you? (laughs) I mean, to some degree... We see, I mean, we've got some varying ages, which is good. But even, even to that point, I remember when we first came to True Life, we came, we've been here since 06. I mean, w- whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, but we were like, yeah, we're kind of the younger church. You know, we're... Pfft. Now I'm 37, 38, got three kids. Jimmy's like 80. <laughs> you know, we're no longer the younger church. And you know what happens? In the same same way. That may not be a racial thing, but guess what happens? People gravitate toward how the church is being led, right? People gravitate toward what it looks like. Oh, there's a lot of white people that look like me. There's a lot of people that think and act like me. A lot of people in my age group. So now we got to work harder for this younger generation. Short of us popping them out ourselves, we maybe don't have some younger folks that are That is that not politically correct. (laughs) Short of us procreating them. Yeah. They may not, they may not be here. Right? So we got to work harder to include people that are in the third race. Now I'm not I'm not talking about being all things to all people. I mean, some things, in some ways, it's just natural that. We're going to do things a certain way. Not every church is going to look the same. Some people are going to have varying preferences. It is what it is. But once again, if we look around, you think we can do better? I think we can. I was in a waiting room this past week, sitting in a waiting room. Mandy was having the diagnostic test done, and... I'm sitting in the waiting room, I got my iPad, and I'm just kind of in my, I'm looking at scripture stuff, sermon stuff, and I'm really, like, I don't really want to be bothered, but there's these two people that come, they're not together, and, and there was an African-American guy that walked in, he signed in, and like within three steps in the office, you ever just see those people, you're like, wow, yeah, there's, there's what the joy of the Lord looks like. I mean, seriously, that's like he, it, you, it was evident this that this guy either was crazy or he loved Jesus. <laughs> and maybe both. And then there was another lady that came in and they ended up, they went, he went back and got a test. He had to come back out and sit back in the waiting room. And so they were sitting close to each other and he just started I don't even remember how the conversation started, but he basically just started uh, testifying to the goodness of God. And she jumps on board, and she's like, I mean, and and they're just encouraging each other. So you've got 65, 70 year old white lady, 50 year old black man. Here's the catch you know what? She's wearing a hat. Guess what hat she's wearing? Trump 2020. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) And listen, I'm not, this isn't a political statement. I'm just saying, in most cases, you don't see these two individuals sitting here talking about the goodness of God. And every time she would speak, I mean, and, and they knew, they knew, like, they weren't just talking fluffy stuff. They were, like, throwing some scripture out to each other. And every time she would say, every time she would say something, his way of, you know, what we may say, "Amen." He'd say, "Thank you, thank you, yes, yes, thank you, thank you." I mean, and the more he thanked her, the more she got going, and it went back and forth and back and forth. But in light of what I was, what I was like looking at and preparing, I'm like, "That's the third race. That's what it looks like." That's what relationships within Christ look like. You can look past some Trump twenty twenty differences, right? He never even mentioned that. I don't know. He may. Who, who knows? But he, that never came up. And, and then I come to find out, this guy had every reason. He had colon, He he had just recovered from colon cancer. Four months, four months of chemotherapy. He said, they told me I was going to have six months, of, six months of chemotherapy. I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. God said, I, you got four months. Yeah, yep, that's right. That's right. Four months, I did it. <laughs> this guy had every reason to potentially doubt, man, where's God in this? And he's using this as an opportunity to minister to a lady and, and go back and forth and be encouraged with each other. Another, um, listen... We're going to have growing pains. So if this is where we're really endeavoring toward, right, we're going to have growing pains. Like, you may say the wrong thing. You may. We don't know each other's background very much other than we have unity in Christ. I got permission. <laughs> She's laughing already. Right. I got permission from Mandy to share this, but um, they were in Michigan last week. One of our favorite things to do in Michigan is to, uh, there's some Mediterranean restaurants up there that we really, really enjoy And so Mandy takes the kids. And I was back here working. Mandy takes the kids to a Mediterranean restaurant. And the server asks. Or the server says hello to Mercy. I think it was. (laughs) And Mandy says. Mercy? Say hola to him. (laughs) And he looks at her. He's like. Oh do you speak Spanish? (laughs) So. We're going to make some mistakes. That's one of them. It was a good laugh. Turns out he knows Russian too. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's read on. Verse 7. "...of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ." "...to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness or, or freedom and access with confidence through faith in Him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory." So, if we can look back at the the main idea and say, okay, well, we understand the plan of God unites people in the Son of God. I get that, Preston. If that's God's plan, if we are in Christ, we're united together. What do we do with that? What do we do beyond that? And that's where the rest of the idea comes from. First thing we do is we proclaim this mystery. That's what Paul was telling them his... That, that's his whole job is to teach this mystery. And Paul's funny. Once again, man, he's so relatable. So he actually makes up words. When Paul can't think of anything else to say, I mean, they had a pretty robust Greek um, vocabulary. He'll just put words together to make it even more impactful. So one thing he, one thing he talks about is, is that he's the least of the least. He basically is telling them, Listen, I am the leaster of them all. I don't deserve to be able to be equipped and called to such a mighty work as to proclaim this good news, this mystery that everybody now has access to the Father through Jesus. Everybody is on the same playing field. So the same task that he had in proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the mystery is the same task we have. Because the secret's out. We don't have to keep that to ourselves. Not only do we not have to keep that to ourselves, we are not to keep that to ourselves. The secret is out. One of the biggest misconceptions that people that don't have a relationship with Jesus or are not connected in any form or fashion to a church is that they have to get right. They have to do something, right? If I could just clean this up, if I could make things better... I'm not as bad as the other person. Like, they think that they have to do something. They have to work to get to God. And he said, no, that's the mystery of this whole thing. This used to be just a sect of, of the Jews. Now that this has been opened up once Christ has come and once Christ has ascended, now that this has been opened up to everybody, you have access to the creator of the universe through his son, And that's our job to proclaim the mystery to the world. So what if somebody says, Oh yeah, I know that. I get that. I'm in Christ. But they look a lot more like that not racist Christian that I just read the quote about. We also, part of what we do in proclaiming this mystery is we have to keep coming back to it. We have to keep challenging each other with it. We have to keep encouraging each other with, hey, that's not how we think. That's Listen, we're not putting prerequisites on people to come to God because God himself doesn't put prerequisites on people. Who are we to do that? One thought I had, and this is really more of a question than a thought, But are we known to treat people that aren't Christians similar to how Christian Jews would have treated the Gentiles? Are we known... To tell them something along this lines, And maybe it's not verbally by our words, but maybe it's by how we respond and how we relate to them. Would we potentially tell them, hey, listen, if you conform to these guidelines, if you meet these standards, if you follow these rules, if you say these prayers, if you eat this food, if you would avoid these drinks, if you would clean yourself up then, then let's talk. Because God wants you. I think that might be more prevalent than we would maybe say on the surface. And so we, we proclaim that mystery. We proclaim the good news, the open secret. But we also make sure within the body, within this third race, that we're challenging each other. That listen, let's keep the gospel the gospel. Let's keep the gospel, the good news, exactly what it is. Let's not put more weight on somebody than they need. God's already set up the plan. God's already sent His Son. God's Son already sacrificed His life. We don't need to require something else of them. Let's just share the good news with people. And you've probably heard the term, it's level at the foot of the cross. Think about how that relates to what we're looking at. Think about if you told a Christian Jew in the early church, hey bro, what Jesus did, it's level at the foot of the cross. I don't think they saw it that way. I think they saw that the Gentiles maybe would have to climb out of this pit and that they were on the other side of the cross. They might be able to both worship Jesus, but it wasn't level. And in the same way, our message to people Has got to always be. It's level at the foot of the cross. Which means when you bring your junk to Jesus. When you lay it down at the cross. When whatever was behind you. And you give to him. And you say this is no longer mine. Because I can't do anything with it. I can't get to God. I need you Jesus. My life now belongs to you. Whatever you say I do. You now get up on level ground. And you leave that junk behind you. Whether you are black, white, male, female, Jew, Greek, it's level at the foot of the cross. This is good news to be shared. My dad has this saying when we talk about secrets, which he is a good secret keeper. But anytime I would tell my dad like, hey, what we just talked about, don't... Don't share that with anybody. Don't tell anybody that. He's like, oh, buddy, I won't do that. Now, I may ask them if they've heard, but I won't tell them. (laughs) And that's okay for me. That's okay for us as a church. Maybe you say, man, I'm a little timid. I, I don't know about sharing this mystery with people, this whole secret. That they have access to God through Jesus. That there's hope. Just ask them if they've heard. You'll get, hey, once you get somebody talking about anything along the spiritual lines, like you'll, you'll normally get a lot more than you asked for. Is that true? So we, we proclaim the mystery. God unites people in the Son of God. To proclaim the mystery of God and display the wisdom of God. What does it mean to display the wisdom of God? And I'm going to have to hurry. Man, that clock so fast. Verse 10. Verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is what I was talking about when we were singing the Rays of Hallelujah. See, the way that God has designed this great mystery that is now an open secret is that this third race, the church, is now showing both the angels in heaven and the angels of darkness what the plan of God, what the wisdom of God really looks like. As it pertains to the heavenly angels, 1 Peter 1.12 says, to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering to the things which now have been reported to you, though those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Angels, God's created beings. they, They are looking at the church and still finding out what... The wisdom of God looks like. What the majestic plan of God looks like. One commentary says. Certainly the angels know about the power of God as seen in his creation. But the wisdom of God as seen in his new creation which is us. The church is something new to them. We get the privilege as we relate rightly to each other. And as we are drawn in unity together to show the angels in heaven how good God is. Isn't that cool? And then on the flip side, the angels of darkness. A guy by the name of E.F. Scott helps us picture this drama. Says the hostile powers had sought to frustrate the work of God. And believed that they had succeeded when they conspired against Christ. Brought him about his crucifixion. But unwittingly they had been mere instruments in God's hands. The death of Christ had been the very means he had devised for the accomplishment of his plan. So it is here declared that the hostile powers after their brief apparent triumph. Had now become aware of a divine wisdom That they had never dreamed of. They saw the church arising as the result of Christ's death. And giving effect what they could now perceive to have been the hidden purpose of God. See it's not our job to necessarily go and and, and flaunt that in front of them. But what we do... By worshiping our Savior. What we do by relating to each other. What we do by proclaiming the mystery of God. All of that as the, as the church, as the third race. All of that is a reminder to the, to the angels of darkness that you lost. Our king's plan is better than yours. And you are forever going to lose. It's over. We are proclaiming that, displaying the wisdom of God. And so the main, main idea starts with the plan of God. Part of what the plan of God includes, other than what's mentioned, is this has always been the plan. I just want us to, I want us to understand that. This has always been the plan of God. This was not something that God got through the Old Testament times and then realized I didn't see this coming. What do I do? How many plans does God have? One. Plan A. There is no plan B. And so for eternity, because God exists outside of time, for eternity, God knew that he was sending his son to make it right. God knew that he was going to unite us together as the church. God knew that he was going to give the Gentiles the same access to him as the Jews. This was always his plan. And from the time that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose, we have now seen it evidenced. And then ultimately, God unites people In the Son of God, to proclaim the mystery of God, display the wisdom of God. And why does he do it all? For the glory of God. What does that look like? What does this culminate in? I think Paul actually summarizes it best in Romans. And this is what the glory of God looks like. And this is, this is really kind of a doxology of About God says, Now to Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. Listen to God alone wise be glory. Through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. To God be glory.